Hello and welcome to The Natural Selection, where this week's theme is vision. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. We are the Natural Selection, a group of taxonomists who want to bring their passion for nature into the wild. Each week, we gather and wax lyrical about the natural world. In the first section, we talk about nature news and interesting research from the past week. In the second section, we talk about a different theme and how that relates to flora and fauna around the world. And this week's theme is vision. So I suppose you should meet the team. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Naomi. Hello. And Nick. Hello. And I'm also Nick, just to confuse everyone. But Nick is the one with the American accent. Wait, the words you're looking for, Nick, are, I don't have a K in my name. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, does, Nick doesn't have a K in his name. Nick is described by all my female friends as the one with the attractive voice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, ladies. <laughs> um, I don't know what that says about my voice, but... Uh... <laughs> I have everybody, other qualities. <laughs> everybody likes somebody with an accent. That's true. That's true. So, yeah, how have you guys been this week? Have you had a nice time, Naomi? Yeah, it's been good. Good this week. Starting to get back to work and stuff, so that's kind of weird, seeing people outside my immediate bubble. I forgot how to communicate to people other than on a computer, so <laughs> trying to relearn that. Yeah. Do you see any weird animals? No, actually. Uh, there's been some moths and some flies in the apartment, but other than that, nothing nothing weird and exciting. And Nick, how's your week been? It's been weird. I started going on these regular walks through the woods near my house, and each day that I went, I saw a slightly bigger animal dying each day, uh, which was kind of like grotesque and maybe a sign. Um started out with just a bee that was sort of like struggling. And then it was a slug that had been stepped on. And then the last day was a mouse in the, in the path, sort of like on its way out. But we spent, I spent, we spent some time together and I think they're all in better places now. I have to say, I'm glad the largest one ended with a mouse. I wasn't sure how horrific it was going to get. Yeah. I was having visions of like deers, like (laughs) strewn across. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not a mammal taxonomist, but, um, I think it was actually a rat. It was pretty big. Aren't you literally a mammal taxonomist? <laughs> don't call me out, Nick. <laughs> yeah, don't you know about the deers? That's you, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, you're right, Nick. I'm a ma- mammal taxonomist, but mice are just so small. And I mean rats or whatever, you know, they're just so small. <laughs> You'll be pleased with what I saw then um, this week, Nick. I saw Kirk's Dick Dicks. <gasps> oh my gosh. In the wild? No, no, I don't think they live in the wild here, do they? Although they do have a, a Dutch name. They are from Africa, aren't they? Mm. If they're, yeah, they're an antelope. Yeah, yes. I just thought maybe I was hoping. <laughs> I'd gone to Africa. Yeah. <laughs> no, I went to a, a safari park style thing. What I, else did you see, Nick, at the well, at the safari park? I saw... Um, Okapi, was that how you'd say it? Okapi? Okapi? In American, we'd say okapi. Okapi. I saw an okapi. 
That was beautiful. That was maybe my favourite. It looked proud. But they've got these brilliantly big ears, and I think that's because they live in a forest. Mm. Cool. Well, after this short break, we'll return with the news. Welcome back, listeners. So each week we try and find the most uh, interesting news and research all about the natural world. So what have you found this week, Nick? This week I have not a jaw-dropping headline, um, but a study that was published in Science uh, that draws attention to some ponds, some really cool ponds in central Mexico, uh, in the Chihuahuan Desert. They are these sort of ancient bacterial ponds in the middle of this like super dry region called the Cuatro Cienegas, which is which sounds which means the four marshes. Um, but they're basically being used to study microbial evolution at the beginning of life on Earth. So these super old communities are like really thick mats of bacteria that have an incredibly rich diversity of archaea, which is what people sort of are thinking might be really most closely related to the first life that existed as a sort of single-celled organism on Earth. So this study is sort of saying, like, this really cool bio, this really cool biodiversity and bacteria uh, is being studied and, and explored in this Mexican desert, which is, like, a crazy place to find it. But everything's out there. Have they found anything surprising? The, I think that the researcher that was working on this, she said that the incredible range of bacteria within a single pond is surprising. There's like a diversity of colors and strains and different branches of the archaea tree all in like a couple square meters. Oh, wow. In that small. Mm -hmm. Each pond is pretty, each each pond I think is up to about 20 meters across, but there are a couple hundred of these ponds. Oh, cool. Wow, that's really, that's really cool. That sounds amazing. I suppose that's, yeah, the Holy Grail is the beginning of life because we weren't really there to see it. So having a window would be really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. I think also the mineral content of these ponds is low in phosphorus and high in some other things. I'm not a, you know, uh, gemologist or whatever it is that studies (laughs) (laughs) the dead world, (laughs) things that aren't alive. (laughs) A pondologist, Uh, I think it's, uh, I think that's uh, Yeah, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, but apparently it's it's sort of similar to what ancient seas were like. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. So low in phosphorus, the ancient seas. I guess low in phosphorus. Hold on, I can actually tell you. Pools rich in magnesium and calcium carbonate, but low in phosphorus. Okay. okay. Calcium carbonate is chalk, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, it's the same thing that shells and corals are made of. Oh, wow. Oh, interesting. Oh, cool. I found out something pretty cool, but entirely unrelated. Let's hear it. That's what this is all about. There was a team uh, related to the Max Planck Institute in Germany, and what they were doing is looking at bat genetics. So previously, there had been studies on bat genetics, but they'd not looked too thoroughly into them. They'd sort of done quite basic analyses of each genome which wasn't ideal because this team pointed out that bats possess these crazy adaptations that other mammals don't. So things like flight, echolocation, uh, extreme longevity, and a unique immune system. 
So if we could study bats and look at their genomes, we could find intriguing insights into all these adaptations. And also they were able to put them on a taxonomic tree. So bats are interesting. They're the second largest order of mammals after rodents, which are the most diverse. But 20% of all mammal species are bats. Uh, that's about 1,400 species. So they're an amazingly diverse group. Any guesses at what their closest relatives are? Tree shrews. Tree shrews? That makes sense, wouldn't it? They live in a tree, they're sort of mouse-like. Hmm. Um, I'll just make a guess at rodent, but I'm not sure. So in fact, you're both wrong. I mean, rodents would be a good guess, tree shrews would be a good guess. But the group they found they're most closely related to is a, is a clade of animals called the pharyngolata. And do you know what's contained within that? I was going to guess pangolin, but I think it might be anteater, is it? No, pangolins are. It's a very wide clade. So it's, oh, okay. Um, pangolins are what they think might be the closest to them. Oh. And it's so long ago, it's difficult to say. But it, things like tigers, wolves, whales, and horses as well are in this group. So rather than being related to sort of rodents, they're more closely related to horses. Hmm. So this oh. is the group that includes the ungulates. Like yes. the antelopes and the deer and things. Okay, cool. Yeah, oh, the yes. Ferungulata. They also think they found evidence that bats can be infected by viruses which previously were thought to only infect birds. So that's quite interesting. Ooh. Oh, cool. Did you find anything cool this week, Naomi? Yeah, so I actually sort of went a little bit on theme with my news this week. Um, and it's about camouflage in deep sea fish. So this article is all about um, and I know what you're thinking, but why do deep sea fish need to camouflage? It's dark. There's no sunlight. What are they hiding from if, if it's dark and they can't be seen anyway? But actually, um, some adaptations to deep sea life is there's a lot of bioluminescence. So this camouflage adaptation is to help them stop reflecting light from stuff like bioluminescence. So these researchers, uh, this article was published in Current Biology from a group of researchers from lots of different institutes. They found that they have densely packed mel melanosomes. Melanosomes are the organelles that contain pigment, melanin. That's the most common light-absorbing pigment. And basically, the way these structures are organized is that they have really low reflectance because they scatter light within the layers and they increase the light absorption of this melanin. And so they basically are ultra-black fish. So this research might have more impact on the invention of new ultra black materials in bioengineering and things like that. I feel like we should keep these fish safe from Anish Kapoor. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the nichest thing I will say today. <laughs> <laughs> so they looked at 16 different species of deep sea fish um, across seven different orders. But yeah, it's interesting. It, it, um, these, this, camouflage and this adaptation to bioluminescence is cool yeah that is cool i like that something we might talk about a little bit later as well like bioluminescence and different kinds of visual signaling in that way oh a sneak peek into this week's theme which i think we should start after this short break you're up for that guys mm -hmm. yep yeah so join us in a few seconds while we'll be talking about vision welcome back everyone that's some pretty interesting news i really enjoyed that section uh, so now we're going to start talking about our theme so hopefully 
we can open your eyes to some new oh. information. You got yeah. it. I did. Uh, you guys can't see us, but I think that terrible joke made Naomi close her eyes in shame. It did. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this week we'd all been reading up on Vision. So what have you guys found? Well, let me tell you, I fell down a rabbit hole of eyes, which sounds really, really horrifying when I say it that way. But I was when I started. So each week we sort of have a different theme and I usually sort of just wander the internet searching for keywords until I find something that interests me and then dive a little bit into it. But this week I had something pop into my head right when I thought about vision. And it was, I remembered from an old nature documentary that I used to watch as a kid about Komodo dragons, that they had a third eye is how the nature documentary described it. So I type into Google, Komodo dragon, third eye, which did bring up some cool new age stuff, um, but also brought up some, the information about um, the thing that I want to tell you about today, which is the many different types of eyes. So what we have is a simple eye. It's basically just a lens and a retina. The lens focuses the light that bounces off of things and falls into the eye. And then the focused image ends, sort of lands on the retina, the back of the eye, which then gets converted into nerve impulses. Simple, basic. I mean, the eye is complex, but what's called a simple eye. However, most vertebrates have a simple eye, but some have other new different things. For example, in reptiles like the Komodo dragon, they have something what's called a parietal eye or a pineal eye. And you think, well, what if something comes up above them and is going to do bad things to them? Never fear, they have a pineal eye, which is a photosensitive collection of cells right on the top of their forehead that can detect basically light and shadow. Um, so they have this sort of like light sensor on the top of their head. And most reptiles have this from the Tuatara through most of the lizards and Komodo dragons. Um, but mammals don't have it. So that was... What's interesting about that to me is Komodo dragons are lizards. And Tuataras, they look exactly like lizards. They they live on New Zealand, but they're they're entirely separate. And I was reading about them as well. And they actually lose their third eye. So it's functional when they're born, but then it, they stop using it for some reason. You're exactly right. So in things like a frog uh, or a tuatara or a salamander or a lizard or even sharks and lampreys, um, they have this parietal eye or this third photosensitive eye and then between there are other simple eyes. But it's lost in things like birds and crocodiles. So the ancestor of them probably had it and found mm-hmm. their use for it. Yeah. Would it surprise you if I told you that there are many other types of eyes? I feel like I know there were some. How many is many? I couldn't tell you, but I'm going to tell you about some of the cooler ones. So certainly you've all heard of the compound eye, the insect eye. That's the sort of standard fly eye or mantis eye that we think of. There are two kinds of insect compound eyes, main kinds. There's the kind that diffracts the image through each of the individual. Each part of the compound eye is called an omatidium. Um, and it's like a little channel through which the light can bounce, like a sort of like a fiber optic cable, but then you have a bunch all come together and then they can build an image. And in the basic ones, the image is like diffracted in how you imagine it would look. But in some compound eyes called superpositional eyes, the image comes together as a single, in a focused single plane, like our eye, but it just comes in through rather than one single lens through many, many, many tiny little compound lenses, the omatidia. Uh, so those insects can actually see very well. 
And in insects that have that sort of focal plane, they also have what's called a pseudo pupil. It looks like a black part of their eye. If you think of a mantis, they have this. So it sort of looks like it's the center of the eye, it's black. But what's really happening is it's really just you're seeing the retina through their omatidia. And if you move around the head of the praying mantis, it will look like the pseudo pupil is moving because the one, the sort of omatidia that are in line with your vision pointing into the center of the eye, you're realigning yourself with different omatidia. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's what you're saying is that's one of the many things that a praying mantis has in common with the Mona Lisa. Exactly. You, it always looks like it's watching you and they have that little devilish smile. <laughs> but there are more types of eyes. One of the weirder eyes, and this you'll have to look up, but it's called a reflector eye. And there's a type of fish called a spook fish. Great name. Uh, would probably fit well in with these like super dark fish in the bottom of the ocean. But they have eyes at the front of their heads that take in light. And their heads are completely transparent. And they also have eyes pointing upwards. They have two lenses that go into the same retina. So if you look at them, they look like they have little cartoon bulbous eyes because you can see the whole sphere of their eye inside their head. They're very freaky. Not a huge fan. Finally, I want to talk about the mollusk eye, which there's a huge variety of them, but there's two main categories. There's the snail eye and the cephalopod eye. And in the cephalopods, there are many different kinds, but the most complex are in the cuttlefish and the octopuses, octopodi, octopi, octopus, octopay, octopid, octopad. I don't know what the... Octopodes. Octopodes. Thank you. Um, But the cephalopods, the cuttlefish, have W-shaped pupils. And that actually allows them to see polarized light, which helps, I think, with their uh, detection of their surroundings and helps them camouflage. I like that, though, because because it's W-shaped, is if you had a cuttlefish on either side of your head, it means your eyes would spell, wow! (laughs) Yeah. But the cuttlefish won't like it, so don't try that. No, they're also quite small. So the O's would have to be very small. You could probably (laughs) fit a spookfish right in between there. Oh, God, what would that spell? I don't even know. (laughs) Woo! But if, if anyone could look it up, it's the spookfish. <laughs> Not really, they can't read. Um, Do you know what you call a fish with no eyes? Fish. <laughs> I should have seen that one coming. <laughs> the fish wouldn't. Oh my god. So, um, I'm going to wrap <laughs> this one up. Enough about eyes. Well, actually, I have two more kinds of eyes. One more. Insects. Surprise have more than one kind of eye. They've got the compound eyes, and some insects have compound eyes and simple eyes. Shocker. What are they doing with all those kinds of eyes? Why do they need them? Not quite sure. Uh, And then finally, let's talk about eagles, which have the strongest eyes in the animal kingdom. Their eyes are about the same size as ours, but they can see a rabbit from two miles away. Wow. That's much further than I can see a rabbit from. Yeah. I keep having the thought that maybe I need glasses because I can't quite read the things on the signs near my house, but they can see rabbits two miles away. Don't they have very long eyes? Eagles? Yes. Their eyes are similarly shaped to ours, but they have special muscles that help contract the, like, shape the sphere of the eye in the way that our eyes can't, so they can focus on the animal through the entire approach. 
from very far away until they're like sticking their claws in it. They can keep the animal in sharp focus using their super contracted muscles of the eye. Oh, wow. Because mm. I know owls um, have a conical eye, don't they? And that mm. helps them focus more accurately from a long distance, uh, which is another raptor, sort of like the eagles. I know they're very similar eyes to us, like in, in structure, but just by changing the shape, you can have massive effects on how well they can focus. Mm. Um, do you know, can you guys think of an animal that has over 100 eyes? Uh, a jellyfish. Close. A clam. Oh, scallops. Bingo. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> jellyfish have photosensitive cells, um, but they're often also attached to other like movement cells or gravity sensing cells. So their their eyes are like combined in with other things. They're multipurpose. Cool. Wow. And that's all I've got about eyes. I'm pretty I exhausted. Brilliant. <laughs> that was bad. Sorry. <laughs> so no, I, I enjoyed can't... it. I liked it. Um, <laughs> so what I found interesting is even though there's all these different types of eyes, that two very similarly shaped eyes can have completely different functionality. So have you guys ever looked a goat in the eye? Unfortunately. Yeah, it's haunting, isn't it? Yes. Um, yeah, they look like they're going to come for me. I haven't. <laughs> never looked a goat in the eye? No. Oh, you are lucky, Naomi, and I'll tell you for why. They have <laughs> rectangular pupils. Oh, okay. It's deeply disturbing. Why do you think this is? They were, they're possessed by demons. That may well be it, but... Sorry, I was busy Googling goat pupils so I could see. Okay. <laughs> so I could see for myself. The reason is, and it's the same reason that their eyes are in a different place to their head. So if you look at a goat, what you'll notice, and the same with sheep, is that their eyes are on the side of their head. Whereas our eyes are on the front and they both look forward. And if you're lucky enough to have a cute little papa or a dog, and if you look at their eyes or a cat, you'll notice that they're also in the front of their head facing forward. And that's because we are predators and we need to judge distance. And that means we sacrifice something else. So while we're really good at telling how far away something is so it's easier to catch, we can't see to the sides of us. And you can see that if you stretch out your arms, so you're making sort of a cross shape, and put them quite far back, you'll notice that it's not very long before your arms disappear. Whereas a sheep and a goat have almost 360 degree vision. Because their eyes are on the side of their head, they're able to see on both sides at the same time. But what they can't do is tell how far something is away. But their rectangular pupils are probably related to this, where the rectangular nature of the pupils means that their field of vision is actually wider. So they can actually see things in their periphery, even though they've also moved their eyes to be able to see further around. So it's basically so they can get the best view all around them all times to stop them being eaten by our sore wolves or something. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Cool. Yeah. A lot of herbivores would have that similar sort of, well, mammal herbivores have that, don't they, where their like, eyes are on the side of their... Exactly right. So it is a protection against being predated from, from the wrong way. Um, there's also other adaptations, even weirder ones. So things like chameleons can independently move their eyes on the sides of their head so they can get almost uh, an entire range of vision just by periodically moving their eyes. Cool. Um, another animal that I found that had really weird eyes and we've talked about it before and um, is a mantis strip so they have very cool eyes interestingly enough actually they're not mantises or shrimp they're closer <laughs> to, to lobsters um but something i actually that i hadn't known so, so i know we've discussed this before so they have 
a lot more photoreceptors than we did. And we talked about it in our um, daylight episode. We were talking about how it's really hard to comprehend how many colors they may be able to see and how they see colors. But not only can they see how this many photoreceptors, um, they cover ultraviolet light. And as well as that, they can also see polarized light. And this actually, something I found, an article I found, means that they actually may be able to see cancer. Because they can see polarized light, they can potentially see the way that the light reflects or changes on cells. And these damaged cancer cells will have different reactions to this polarized light. So they are related to lobsters and they might be able to see cancer. Isn't the symbol on star signs of cancer a crustacean? Cancer means crap. Yeah. (gasps) Coincidence? Almost (laughs) certainly. (laughs) um i wonder how i mean that is a really that is a genuinely cool fact but having discovered that it must be really frustrating to discover a way to detect cancer but it being entirely because i don't think um mantis shrimp are able to communicate all that well with us no but i think what they're doing is looking at ways that they can make cameras like mantis shrimp eyes so mantis shrimp also have compound eyes as well like some of the eyes that nick discussed um, and they're on stalks so they can see they have pretty good vision around them oh cool i love our eyes on stalks like the <laughs> snail eye that you mentioned nick mm-hmm. yeah so that, that's cool um yeah so they're working on maybe trying to figure out how a camera could could do this instead oh that's awesome it's always kind of nice when you're able to learn from nature because i feel we ignored it for too long yeah and hopefully in like not a super exploitative way <laughs> yeah fingers crossed (laughs) so nick you're talking about the different needs sort of how different eyes reflect different needs of different animals and some of those different pupils that different animals have helps them see in dark there are other types of adaptations that help animals see in the dark even if they have a simple eye like us including something that has a really beautiful name it's called a tapetum lucidum which is a bright tapestry or coverlet And it's a layer of tissue in the back of the eye that reflects light. Uh, So it's what you see when you see um, when you're walking in the dark and you shine a flashlight at a fox or a cat or a dog and their eyes seem to glow. It's that it's reflecting off of the tapetum lucidum in the back. And it really apparently helps them see. We don't have it, of course. It also is, I think, really beautiful. If you look at pictures of those reflective eyes. They look like opals or something like sort of iridescent. But it's not only in cats and foxes and that sort of thing. It also is in all through the fish world and a lot of things deep in the ocean have it because there's so little light down there. So it's for for darkness. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So it basically amplifies the light that's in the eye by bouncing it back and like it sort of bounces it back and forth in the eye. Oh, cool. Yeah, I saw some images of it. It is. You're right. It's really beautiful looking. It's cool, but a bit freaky if you see something like eyes flash out at you in the dark and you don't know what it is. Yeah, Yeah, I I had that with alligators in America. Oh, my God. Yeah, we were on a boat and he was like, turn off the lights and just shone out a torch and told us to count all the eyes. (laughs) It it was a big boat, so we were fine. I will also say that uh, something that comes up quite often in our podcast, I should just drop it in, another animal that has the tablet of mucidum night parrot no way ah. no way is there anything it can't do <laughs> i know <laughs> wow. uh, oh. i think we should make the night parrot our mascot for how often we talk about it <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
Oh, that's amazing. I suppose, yeah, there's... I suppose when you think of eyes, you always think of our eyes, but animals have like evolved all these weird ways to see stuff. Yeah, so true. Something that I looked up, and so technically I'm not sure if it falls in the scope of vision, uh, because they don't use their eyes to do this, but something that I looked up was um, infrared detection in snakes. Um, so this is something that snakes can do with what's called pit organs. Um, it's evolved independently in two different groups of snakes, uh, so the boadae, which are boas and pythons, and the crotalinae, the pit vipers, and they is have. Is that those... why they're called pit vipers? I think so, yeah, because they have this pit oh. organ, or perhaps it's. I'm actually not sure which came first. I don't know if maybe the pit organ is called it because pit vipers have it, or which way around it is. But yeah, they have a pit organ which allows them to see in quotes radiant heat. So basically, the way these sensors work is they have ion channels in them, and these ion channels are temperature dependent. So at about 28 degrees Celsius. They react um, and they are able to give these snakes a sort of picture of the animal in front of them. So they could probably detect a mouse at about a meter at this sort of temperature range. Oh, cool. So it actually goes quite far. Yeah, but pretty far. Yeah, I think because they can detect it from a little bit below body temperature of a mammal, they can kind of detect from, from a little bit further away. Oh. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it if it technically is vision because they're not actually using the the light, the photons, but they're using a a light source. Um, but it's the radiant heat that's activating the sensor. But in a way, I think it's it makes sense to think about it as vision because I think it can give them a sort of way to see their surroundings. Yeah, I mean, we call it night vision, don't we? Yeah, yeah. I think it's things like these that really. Um, force us to reckon with how centri- how human-centric we've made our study of biology. I think that we can expand our understanding of vision to include radiant heat. Um, interestingly as well, this channel, actually, we have it, the, the same cha- ion channel they use. It's called TRPA1, and, and it is in, in mammals. It's also known as the wasabi detect- receptor, uh, so it detects pungent irritants from mustard plants or other sources. Oh, my God. That is so cool. Yeah. Yep. Mm. So what you're saying is snakes can see wasabi. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So when we eat wasabi and it just like blasts everything out in there, they're clearing out an, one of my ion channels. <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> but um, the the other thing I found as well when I was looking this up was that ground squirrels actually can kind of use this sense that snakes have kind of to their advantage so what they've been seen to do is that they'll shake their tail vigorously in order to heat up their tail so that the tail will be visible by infrared as a sort of a signal to be like i'm here but don't mess with me i know you're there i'm prepared to to fight or something like that or uh, that's that's what the article said my other idea was that maybe it's sort of like a bit of a divergent tactic because if it's signaling it's not signaling to its weaker part it's to its tail which is maybe you know a bit more yeah a bit less sensitive or vulnerable than its body brilliant deductive work naomi i really i I, that makes sense to me thank you well i I, i'm not sure if i'm right or not but you know it kind of makes sense i have a question for you guys why would a smaller animal's favorite film be the hobbit hmm i'm not sure (laughs) I know. Why would that be anyone's favourite film? I know what you're thinking. <laughs> like, it's just not as good as Lord of the Rings. Do you know what is special about the Hobbit film? Did you guys see it? Yeah. I've only seen one of them. Oh, well, that's all you need. 
<laughs> Both for this conversation and in general. Yeah, just sack it <laughs> off. It's it's yeah. Did you notice anything unusual about how it was filmed? Um, I thought Gandalf, that Ian McKellen guy, was really big. I don't know how they did that. <laughs> um, what you might have noticed is it looked strange when you were watching it, and it's because it was filmed at a very high frame rate. And smaller animals see the world at a higher frame rate than us. <gasps> So we take a frame rate, what it is, is how many images you would see per second. So if you ever watch old films, like black and white ones, or is it rotoscopes? Is they're called the things that go around? What are they? Yeah. So or if you watch rotoscopes, you'll notice there might be, it might look like it's skipping a scene. And that's because we can see 24 frames per second. And what that means is, yeah, we can process that many images per second. So for a film to be realistic, it needs to be higher than that. So we don't skip any frames by accident and suddenly see a jolt. Uh, yeah, when you watch old films of people running at very old films, you'll notice that it, it will look like it's jumping. But these smaller animals actually can see things at a much higher rate. So some animals can see up to 100 frames a second. So to them, films would be so annoying. And this was research done by Trinity College Dublin, and they found a strong correlation between a higher frame rate and a smaller body size. And they think this is because smaller animals often have to avoid larger, slower animals. And by having a, f a higher frame rate in their vision, it means essentially they're seeing everything a bit like slow motion. So when we go to swing at them, they see it like Neo sees Agent Smith. They just have time to get out of the way, which is why things like flies, when you go to hit them, it's no big deal for them. They've seen it coming and they just get out of the way. <laughs> I think that's also compounded by the oh. fact that <laughs> it's also compounded by the fact that their compound eyes are directly connected it's like a direct channel uh it doesn't have to bend through any lenses they can detect movement more quickly than a simple eye i did read that while they can detect the movement they actually if it's going slow enough they can't so the rather than going to quickly hit a fly what you should actually do is just go very slowly towards it with a book and it won't react oh, to time. Just smush it. No, read to it. Oh, right. Oh, shoot. Right. Right. <laughs> We're naturalists. Yeah. Yeah, just read in the eye of Argon, and it will want to jump out the window. So, problem solved. Yeah. So, interesting, you say the compound eye. Did you guys look up at all the evolution of the eye? No. Oh. So, the evolution of the eye... Amazing, I was reading about this. So the first eyes they found were in trilobites. I'm sure most people have heard of trilobites. And the, the appearance of the eye was very, very sudden. So we have fossils of trilobites from 544 million years ago. No eyes. All of a sudden, 541 million years, eyes everywhere. Oh so it is they evolved and diversified very, very, very quickly. And they were compound eyes, and very similar to modern insects. They are distantly related, aren't they, to modern insects, trilobites? Yeah, the, yeah, they're panarthropods. That would explain that sort of uh, relationship. So the vertebrate eye, or the simple eye, as you called it, there were some calculations done, things like rate of evolution and complexity of evolution and evolutionary pressure to evolve the eye. And if you went from a collection of photosensitive cells to a vertebrate eye, how long do you think that would take to evolve? If you were to, a wild guess. A couple hundred years. No. <laughs> That's optimistic. 
Uh, 50 Europe, million years. Obviously, evolution is a very, very slow process. But what this researcher found, it was uh, Nilsson and Pilger. And what they found was that based on these different pressures, they think it would only take 363,992 generations to evolve an entire functional vertebrate eye from just a patch of photoreceptive cells. So a few hundred thousand years. So they reckon it would have gone from no eye to a vertebrate eye that quickly. Wow. Yeah, which is staggeringly fast and would it would explain why it appeared so suddenly on the fossil record if eyes can evolve that well. And there are still animals that have that sort of very basic eye. One of the more basic eyes is cup eyes. So what these are is they're, they're sort of plane of photoreceptive cells. So that's all they can say is where there's light. Now, to make it directional, the cup eyes just have a slightly concave area that they're in. And this gives them the ability to tell direction very, very subtly. And you can find these in uh, the planarians. They will have these cup eyes. So it's sort of very, very primitive. And they, they exist quite happily even, even now. Ooh. And when you say simple, is it that like they just detect movement or like, is it just like light and dark? Okay. So it can detect light and dark. Oh, how, it, how it would detect movement is by this cup um, uh, sort of shape, it means they can tell whether where the light is coming from. So the movement would be a lack of light. So if something's coming towards them, all of a sudden the light would disappear. Oh, okay. But the evolution of eyes is quite an amazing thing because the certain genes involved with it are incredibly conserved. But there's one gene in particular, which is called Pax6. Have you guys heard of Pax6? Um, yes, I is think one, so. Is it one of the Hox genes? It is. We had lectures on these, which were great fun. I definitely remember every second of those lectures. <laughs> <laughs> because I was definitely widely awake during all of them. Paying rapt attention. Yes, I was in the front row, uh, which meant that I had to keep my eyes open. Your eyes were peeled. <laughs> um, so Pack 6 is actually amazing. So you might have ever heard, a lot of people sort of muddle this fact, that, that there was this group of scientists who put the genes for a mouse eye into a fly. Have you heard that? It sounds like it's it's ringing a bell. Yeah, same with me. I think I feel like I've heard something like it, but so it's not quite true. They didn't put the genes for the mouse eye. What Pac six is is it's a signifier, sort of a messenger for the genes. And where that is, it says build an eye here. So it activates the genes which make the eye. What they took is they took the Pac six gene from a mouse and put it into a fly, and the mouse Pac six gene still works in a fly. Which means that those millions, I think there's a billion years of evolution between those two animals. And the gene hasn't changed one bit, hasn't mutated at all. It's been so conserved. And we have exactly the same thing. Whoa. Wow. So it's a fundamentally important thing. And it's one that triggers the production of eyes. And they did all sorts of weird things with this. So they put it on a fly's knee and the fly built eyes on its knees. Delicious. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, Nick, the evolution of eyes is, it, it seems like it's a super important part of living, uh, especially as vertebrate. But there's something that I, I came across in my research that I found was really interesting. It was an adaptation to help animals stay alive that keeps them blind. Uh, so, yeah. So there's something called infant blindness. And humans have it, um, as well as many other mammals. 
so basically animals that require the parental care to grow are often born without the ability to see because it keeps them from wandering off like kittens uh, like kittens exactly and puppies many also the marsupials which are born so like compared to a placental what we would consider premature they're almost entirely their eyes haven't even fully developed yet some animals like the naked mole rat are born completely blind and have to rely on sight and or not on sight but on smell and touch until their eyes develop when they get older but this sort of limits them to being in the nest or the den or with the parent uh, it keeps them out of trouble basically um, yeah. but Humans aren't born blind, but they're born with pretty bad eyesight. That is amazing. I did know that with human babies, that it's even up to a year, they can only see about a meter in front of them, like to mm. any sort of focus level. Mm. I was reading about this. If you, if you, it's the golden mole, funnily enough, which isn't really that golden and isn't a mole. <laughs> but you can't see their eyes. They're completely blind. They've sort of lost their optic nerve. But they have skin over their eyes and fur over that skin. So completely blind, but they still have eyeballs behind that. Oh, no. Yeah. So even though they've evolved to lose their eyesight, they haven't quite evolved yet to completely lose their eyes. But some animals have, like things that live in caves often evolve to not grow their eyes because they're so expensive to grow. They're such a complicated bit of kit that it uses a lot of their energy to grow eyes. I can see Naomi's face as she Googles goat golden mole. Yeah, I'm Googling golden mole, and I can't tell if I think it's really cute or horrifying. They're also the only iridescent mammal, but oh. also can't see that. Mm, yes. So yeah. the iridescence in other animals, things like butterflies, you know, that sort of sparkly thing, like in a pigeon's neck. Uh, butterflies have it. I'm sure you guys can think of loads of examples. It looks like an oil spill is how I would describe it. Uh, very, very popular in birds. It's usually used as a visual signal, but these animals don't. And they think it's because they're digging that the the fur, this sort of iridescence, actually provides a way for them to slip through uh, under the sand. So it just makes their fur really smooth rather than it being for visual purposes. Naomi, did you see in looking in Googling golden mole photos, the one that shows how big it is compared to a human hand? Because that pushed it over the edge from gross to cool for me. It's a ping pong ball, isn't it? Yeah, that, okay, you're right, actually. Yeah, that, that, that makes it makes it much cuter when I see how small it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, they're about the size of a ping pong ball, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, they're, they're just tiny, 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 cute, cute, cute. Yeah, they are, they are super, super cute. Yeah, I think. I mean, that's as good a vision to end on as any. Mm-hmm. Um, have we opened your eyes to any new information, guys? I'm seeing in a whole new light. I'll have to wait and see. Okay. Very <laughs> excellent. Very excellent. Of course, we'll be back next week. Uh, next week, I think we're going to talk about museums. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we'll go and get a collection of facts. Uh, I can't think of any other puns relating to museums. I think that's. I think. I think we should stop there, Nick, and archive this episode. Excellent. Love it. <laughs> But that does bring us to an end of this episode. So please do join us next week for that. But for this week, it's goodbye from Naomi. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.
This is why I hate taxonomy. I bet its Latin name will be like an exact description of its genitals. But then when they give it its common name, they're like, this is the golden mole. But it's not a mole. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not golden. It's not really golden. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 